Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. So this week we read Parshat Vayakel, um, which depending on how, who you choose to follow, either happens after the golden calf, or there's different questions about the timing and therefore what the significance of it is. But it is the actual construction of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. And I want to look at a question that is interesting because it ties together the Pasuk from this Parsha with the instructions for the Mishkan, which happened back in Truma. And so one question I just always thought about year after year is how do we understand where all of these big, fancy materials for the Mishkan came from? Is it really that everything that the Israelites used to build the Mishkan came from Egypt? Or is there more of a a, a fantasy element, um, fantasy, fantastical element to what happened. And so what I want to just, as an example, um, is to look at one particular material that, of course, is critical to the construction of the Mishkan and is cited in both Truma. The commentary is coming from Parsha Truma, which we read a few weeks ago, but the Ibn Ezra, which we'll see, connects it to the Pasuk in this week's Parsha. So um, in this week's Parsha, um, what the Torah tells us is that everyone who would make gifts of silver or copper brought them as a truma for Hashem, right? As a, a gift for God. And then the kol asher nimsa ito shitim, everyone who had acacia wood, lechom malechet ha'avodah heviyu. For any work of the service, they brought that. Now, when the this of course the same wood is mentioned in Parsha Truma, Rashi and Ibn Ezra take very different approaches to understanding where it came from. Now we know that this wood it, it, they had to use big big beams of it, right? It, it's kind of like okay, so where where did this come from? How did they have it with them? Like what is what is actually going on here? So Rashi quotes the Midrash, and he says, right? Where did they get this wood in the midbar? And he says, well, there's a rabbi who answers in the Midrash that Yaakov Avinu tzapa beruach ha-kodesh sh'atidin Yisrael ifnot mishkan b'mibar. That Yaakov, through ruach ha-kodesh, through sort of divine um, inspiration, he saw that in the future, his children would be building this mishkan in the desert. V'hevi arazim l'mitzrayim v'neta'am. And so he brought these trees to Egypt and planted them there. And then he commanded his children to take those trees with them when they left Egypt. So this is a way of answering the very obvious question of how on earth do these Israelites in the middle of the desert have all of this nice wood with them? And it's a, it's a way of answering it through divine means, through, like I said, this sort of fantasy, supernatural element that Yaakov only knew this through the prophecy and therefore planted it and said, take this with you, right? They don't know why they're taking it with them, but that he made them promise, just like with taking the bones out of Egypt, also take this tree, this wood with you. And so they did, and now they learn why they need it. Okay, that's one approach. Now we look at the Ibn Ezra, which is much longer. And so uh, just we'll go through it more carefully because there's a lot going on 
with this Ibn Ezra. So he opens by saying, there are some from earlier who say, meaning in our tradition, who say that Yaakov, you know, sort of knew that this was going to happen um, and had them take this wood out of Egypt um, through the commandment of Moshe. And that the the proof of that is the part of the pasuk that we read at the beginning that is in our week's parsha, the chol asher nimsa ito, right? Everything who they brought all the wood that they had that was found amongst them, meaning that this is something they already possessed, and then went and gave it to the Mishkan. And so how did they already possess it? Well, because Moshe had commanded them, take this wood out of Egypt when you leave. But then he's going to come in and he's going to challenge this a little bit. And he says, okay, but wait a minute. If you're going to say that the, that it's because of this pasuk of asher nimsa ito, then, well, why? It, it's going to mean because they needed it for some kind of a need. And they wouldn't just be carrying it with them. It's that they were going to be using it for something else. And so what need could they, could they possibly have had for this wood? And then also, so how does he answer that? Well, he's sort of, he's elaborating, kind of answering, kind of just elaborating on this question. He says also, wait a minute, the Egyptians thought that they were leaving for three days to go sacrifice to Hashem in the desert. And now they're carrying these 10 amot which is very, very large, beams out with them, right? walking right past the palace, carrying these giant beams. And you're going to say, like, what, what, how on earth are they going to answer for the fact that they're schlepping these, these beams with them? Right? It's sort of, he's basically saying, this doesn't really add up, right? They would have had to argue that there was some purpose for needing these beams, Okay, maybe it would be that they, they're going to go offer, you know, sacrifice session in the desert, but wait a minute, you're not going to need something that big, right? And so there's no way a bunch of your slaves are just going to march past you, your door, your window, schlepping these giant beams, and no one's going to ask a question. So he doesn't, what, I think what he's really getting at here is that Rashi's answer, in his opinion, this Midrash, it just doesn't really entirely make sense to him, right? He's just trying to think through, okay, what would this actually look like? And his answer is, eh, I don't really know, right? The story doesn't really add up. So then he continues and he, he pivots and takes in a new direction. He says, okay, so now we don't know if this was just a tradition our fathers have. Um, and you know, if it's just a tradition that they have fine, then, you know, we should follow it. But if it was based on logic, he says, then we can challenge it. Then we can seek out a new explanation. So what's his new explanation? He says, actually, there was Samuch al-Harsinai, right next to Harsinai, there was a Ya'ar Atse Shitim. There was actually a little forest of this very kind of wood, right? Meaning this was some kind of natural occurrence that happened. And when they arrived there, Moshe says to them, by the way, you, you know, you're going to, you're going to be here for a few days, right? We're not going anywhere. And he says, based on something he explains earlier, Hashem's Anan, the cloud wasn't there to protect them. So what do you do when you have a forest and no other means of protection? He says, everyone made a sukkah, right? Everyone went out, cut down trees in this forest, 
and built for themselves these little huts where they could live because they were going to be staying there for a little while. Moshe, now Moshe, he didn't tell them that it was going to be for the Mishkan, right? They're living there for a while before they find out what they're actually going to be using this wood for. First, they're just, they've cut it down so that they can build a sukkah. And he says, that's why the Torah says that this wood is kol asher nimsa ito, right? That every person brought the wood that they had amongst themselves. That's why they had the wood, because they had cut it down to build themselves some shelter. Now, what does he do here? What he really does is say, okay, as we said, Rashi's explanation, this midrash doesn't really add up, right? It's kind of a struggle. And so he volunteers, he offers an explanation that actually holds weight. I mean, you could ask, is there really going to be like a little forest in the middle of the desert? I don't know anything about geography or all of that. But what you can at least say is that he's presenting a logical reality-based argument for what could have happened. Now, I think that this is completely fascinating. And I think it's just a cool example of all of the, the intersections of the different parts of how we understand the Torah, how different people approach religion, right? Rashi is comfortable saying, yeah, you know, these trees just kind of Yaakov knew through prophecy they were going to need them. So they planted them and then they just brought them into the desert, right? It's like this, he's comfortable saying, you know, departing from the world of the natural, we're departing from the world of the rational. Ibn Ezra clearly is not so comfortable with that, right? That doesn't sit well with him. He doesn't think this is a reasonable explanation. So instead, he tries to find that dafka, that rational one, that scientific one, right? The way, the thing that could explain most logically what actually happened here. And I don't think one answer is wrong and one answer is right. Rather, I think it's just reflective of how different people approach these things. Some of us are comfortable believing in that supernatural element, the one that maybe facts don't actually add up on the ground, but you say, well, this miracle happened, etc." Other people really struggle to accept that and to view their religion through that lens. And instead they need to say, no, this must have been some rational fact, some something that must have bear some connection to reality that happened. So I think that there's space for both um, and that this really is a fascinating example of that. Shabbat Shalom.